I was up in the middle of the night saying, you can't do your usual talk, book talk. They're going into Ango. And my usual book talk includes a kind of feminist critique of the forms. And I thought, wow, that's not the way to usher in an ango, because you have committed to surrendering to these beautiful forms. So in the middle of the night, I rewrote my talk. <laughs> and I'm happy because I've given the talk about 20 times already. So um, the book uh, that I'm talking about, Untangling Karma, Intimate Zen Stories on Healing Trauma um, has many layers to it. It has one layer that's systemic and cultural, I was going to say political, it's not actually political, but addresses the trauma that we all have from the culture in which we live. I often talk about that when I'm addressing a city center place. And then it has a therapeutic or psychological level of all the things I have done to heal. So maybe here I should say, um, I entered Zen practice young, I met Katagiri Roshi when I was 23. And at that time, I had a very disturbed emotional body from trauma, mostly, all different kinds. And so this book is a lot about what happened to me to kind of come out the other end um, what I call 80% healed. Yay. <laughs> That's great. And I also say now, 80% enlightened. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So how did I get from there to here is what the book is about, mostly. And, but I'm going to give a talk that's about the book, but also um, my wish for you to have a good and deep ango. And what might I say as a person who's done many, many angos? What might I say from that low, deeper level of the book, which is my Zen practice and how Zen practice supported everything I do now. Even though I'm kind of rebellious at the moment. I'm not wearing my robes. I grew my hair long. <laughs> I want to just dance and sing. I don't want to get into the form. But as my friend, I stayed with a friend in Portland, and she cocked her head and she said, 
Well, it's one thing, Judith, to say you don't need the form after you've done it for 50 years. It's another thing to tell people who haven't done the form that they don't need to do it. Do you get what I mean? It's quite different. Uh, I got a lot out of the form. Katagiri called it a, my root teacher is Katagiri Roshi, and he called it a snake that's curling around, and then you have to go through a bamboo pole, and you can't curl. You go through the pole, which is our training, which you're entering, and then when you get out the other side, you could go like this again, but you're really quite, quite different the way you view life and the way you are with yourself are different. So the first thing I wanted to say is this is a special time when the causes and conditions come together for you to do an ango in this incredibly prepared space. I, I think Zen is a lot like Montessori. We do prepared spaces so that you can have an experience that is unlike anything else. But you don't always have the causes and conditions to do it. So you special people have the causes and condition, at least for the next three months, to go on the bamboo pole and feel what the ancestors are trying to teach us. One of the chapters in the book is called The Doc Retreat. It was a retreat I did because um, I wanted to be like a hermit on top of the mountain. You know what I mean? So, but I had two kids in elementary school and I lived in the suburbs. So I invented this form called The Doc Retreat where half the day I would sit with a break to get the kids off to school, and the rest of the day I would um, do normal things. So I sat five hours a day. I did that for about four years, maybe two months in the spring and two months in the fall. Um, and that was after I left a sangha that had fell apart ethically, and I was very, very wounded, and I didn't know what to do. I lost my sangha. So I just said, just sit and do my dreams. Sit outside in all kinds of weather by myself, and we had a little pond in the back. And it was really an incredible experience for me and I got to a place where my mind was so quiet, I didn't even know that that was good. I was just quiet. In fact, <laughs> a bird landed on my head. And I, I thought, my eyes were closed. What is that? Is, you know, I was so quiet. Is, is that a bird? And then it flew off and I knew that it was a bird. But I never understood what actually was happening that I was, my mind was quiet. 
while it was happening. There was absolutely no entertainment except for the bird. That was... Um, and I thought that I would be doing these doc retreats a lot for the rest of my life. And I only did them for four years, and I've never gotten it together to do it again. And I even moved to a place that had a beautiful lake and was in the country, and I never got all the conditions, the inner and outer conditions to do it. So what you're doing is special. You don't know if your life will provide it again. And so please enter Ango with the spirit of um, special. This is an important time, and it might not happen again. So now, I don't know who's doing the quilt. Now's the time I want the first quilt. Ah, there he is. So I made a quilt that is a visual representation of the book. And the actual story that was <laughs> the quilt didn't get in the book. My editor, slash and burn, took the story out. But um, I really wanted this idea of holding hands with your shadow to be in the book. In fact, that was the title that I wanted. But the um, publisher said it was too 90s to talk about a shadow. So it ended up being what it is. So this is the visual representation of the book. And I'm just going to go through some of the symbols. In the bottom is the screaming human being filled with samsara. And over there is the Eightfold Path, how you get out of the scream. Then this whole part is holding hands with your shadow. And for me, a lot what the book was about, or not the book, but the experience that I did, was to go through all the parts of myself that I had split off, or the parts of myself that I hated, or the parts of myself that were so traumatized I wouldn't even go there. And in the last, well, it's been a long time, it's been my whole life, really, that I've been trying to pull this all together so that I could feel whole. So this was an experience I had walking behind my son in New York City on Broadway, that street in Soho. And he brings up my shadow like crazy, like I just feel like such a terrible person at that time when I was walking behind my son. And I felt myself holding hands with the whole part of myself I hated. So this is the experience of that. And then at the top is our higher consciousnesses, our Buddha consciousness, the divine but benevolent, unconditional love that can come down. And I don't know, can you see there are rays? And the rays are holding this process of digestion. 
and I'm going to talk a lot about digestion. Now I'm going to read you this part right here, and since your arms are up, I'm going to say this is enough. Did everyone get to see? Yeah, okay, so you can take it down. So that whole center part is what I would say is a vessel, like an alchemical vessel. I think zazen is like that, an alchemical vessel like a furnace that burns up your karma or rubs out, rubs. Um, one of the Japanese Zen teachers, I forget his name, came to Hokyoji and his whole thing was grist for the mill. All these stuck places and hateful places are the wheat that we rub, 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 until they ground down and dissolve or are made into bread. Something good comes from it. So that part um, is from Ayakema. I, she has passed on, so Ayakema Daiosho. And this is what is written. I took it, uh, I don't know, do you guys know Insight Timer? I sometimes use Insight Timer. And this is from one of her uh, forgiveness. She has beautiful meditations on Insight Timer. We are going to fill our hearts with forgiveness for ourselves. For anything we dislike in ourselves. For anything we think we've done wrong, thought, or said wrong. Anything that is a burden, we are going to forgive ourselves. Surround ourselves with forgiveness. Feeling the ease that an open heart brings. So this has been a process for me of learning how to have uh, alchemical vessel, a digestion machine that digests, metabolizes, and then releases the karmic knots, K-N-O-T-S, that are lodged in my body. And I've done a lot of things. The book is a lot about all the other things I've done. But tonight I decided to only focus on Zen. I have a great deal of gratitude towards the training that you're involved in. So we, I think it's important to be in control of the heat of our vessel. Uh, because if you turn up your internal pressure too high, uh, if you're too forceful, if you're pushing in your vessel, your zazen form, um, you can burn yourself up. And oftentimes when I'm pushing, I'm a big pusher, because I'm a Jew, because I'm uh, achievement-oriented, 
And I took enlightenment as an achievement uh, project. The, the, please do not copy that. That's the wrong way to go. And I would put my temperature up to high, and usually I'd get hurt. In fact, that's how I hurt my hip, was I was pushing to get some idea that I thought I wanted, or that was the Buddha body or whatever, I'm going to call it cockamamie idea, I, ha I had about what I was doing, and I blew out my hip. And how many times do I have to learn this over and over? It's not too hot isn't good. Too cool is also not good because you don't cook then. You don't cook. And if you have a lot of trauma or emotional disturbance, then it's often good to simmer, to put it on simmer and be very, very gentle and let the Dharma, let the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas cook you without any uh, striving. And so, you know, in a crock pot, if you put a really tough piece of meat in a crock pot, but you put it on simmer for like 10 hours, it'll soften up and fall apart. And sometimes that's what I think is best if you're sitting with a lot of pain or suffering, is to put yourself on simmer, and, but still do it, still do it. So a lot of the book is about exploring how we create our inner psychic structure, our inner I. And that comes from a reaction to our childhood, to our personal experiences we've had along the way, through ethnicity or race, has a great deal to do with how we create our sense of self. And I added several years ago intergenerational trauma, which I think comes when you really start to recognize that your ethnicity or your race actually affected how you put together your inner psyche, your inner structure. And that's pretty in place by the time you leave high school, I think. Um, and part of what I, when they talk about no self, what the heck does that mean, you know? And now I have this feeling that, you know, sometimes when I was teaching, my students would come in. We called it doksan. You guys call it sanzen. And they would say, I, I am comp a complete mess. I'm, I'm not concentrated. I'm not nothing. I just am a mess. I'm going through all my emotional round and round and round. And I would say, that's great. That's great. You got to it. You got to the structure of your psyche. And that's what we need to dismantle. 
And mostly what that is, is defense mechanisms that we learned to survive, right? And um, so in a way, the book is a story about me deconstructing my defense mechanisms, which is why when I give a talk now, I'm like a vulnerable, I could just cry all the time because it's so potent and um, it's so wonderful to finally be free of how I defended myself all these years. And it took me till I'm, I'm 71. So it's a lifetime. Katagiri Roshi used to laugh and say, lifetime after lifetime to deconstruct this sense of an I. I think I'm going to go with the flow here. I'm going to talk about Jesus for peace. So I went with a great vow to the Jesus for peace pilgrimage to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I had quite a big experience there, which I'm going to read to you. And it is about me starting to see that whatever structure I thought was my I is um, very, very complicated and layered, many, many different identities. But actually, in this, there is no center. There is no I that's making these decisions. I realized that I was made by the causes and conditions of my ethnicity, of my race, of what my family of origin was like. All these things that being a hippie, that was very influential. And I became a reaction to all these outer forces. But once I realized I was a reaction, then I felt like, oh, okay, there's no Judith like I thought there was. And in that place, I had a great deal of freedom of choice. Then I could choose how I wanted to react to things. That's hard to talk about. Did I make any sense at all? Okay, here's what I'm going to say. This is from... Jesus for peace. Standing and sweating in extremely hot weather in Hiroshima on August 9th, 2005, the day of the 60th anniversary of the United States nuclear bombing, I saw through to the bottom of any sense I had of a conditioned, solid, one-identity self in utter amazement. There were so many identities within me interchanging. There I was, dressed in traditional Japanese clothes as a Zen monk, with my head shaved. I was an American, Jewish, female, feminist, dressed in traditional Japanese clothes and bald. Being bald was deeply emotionally emblematic for me. On the one hand, I felt like I was masquerading as a man. And layered on top of that, 
I felt like a Jewish woman entering a gas chamber, a breast cancer survivor, or a Zen priest letting go of her attachments. The complexity and superimposition of these images triggered my sense of the unraveling of any identity. Who was I? These multidimensional references left me totally baffled. I was standing in the spot where my country had committed the worst atrocity of war, nuclear, mass, and civic destruction. I was standing there for peace. However, in many people's eyes, I was still the enemy. And I have one more paragraph about this moment. I came to realize that I, Judith, was a reaction to all the issues of the previous generation. My life had been a reaction to my parents, to World War II, to the cultural influences of hippies, and to other events. It seemed that all of the most important decisions of my life, who I would marry, what my religion and career would be, had been made from an aversive reaction to my parents and Jewish history. Choosing Zen meant choosing the religion of the enemy, the Japanese. My blue-eyed, blonde, goyish husband, who was German ancestors, fits into the same scheme of oppositional defiance. I was aware of how rebellious my sad, angry, hurt teenage self had been, but I had not understood the extent of her conditioning and reactivity. Now I realize that I was made up of all those non-I elements. That's from Titnat Han, Daosho. I am made up of non-I elements. Even though I had studied the teachings of Buddhism for many years, still I had unconsciously presumed that there was a central place in myself that had made many of the major decisions of my life. So this began a contemplation of interdependence and systems thinking. Now I'm totally into that systems thinking that I am from a broader sense of the conditions. There's no I except for the reflection of the conditions that I'm in. And that changed how I made decisions and choices in my life. For example, I was the guiding teacher at the Zendo. And up until that point, I was always anxious because I felt like I was the center pole and I had to make the right decisions for the group. And so I was constantly anxious. And then after this, I realized, no, honey, you're not the center. You're part of the system that makes a sangha or makes like you'll each have your part, you know, and, and if you do your part, the 
machine works smoothly. And I even realized as the guiding teacher, as the main, so-called main person, I was just a cog in this machine. If I did my job, if I trusted everybody else, you know, not have to control everybody else, trusted them, the machine worked and we figured things out and I didn't have to take on the role of the center pole. So one thing about entering Zen practice, this training practice, in a way, for people who have very emotionally disturbed bodies, emotional bodies, it's kind of safe because it's highly choreographed. You're held by the schedule. You always know what you have to do. The Sangha supports you. You're not alone. So I was able to let myself fall apart because I just drifted in the stream of Sishin or the stream of the community. So I didn't have to hold myself. And that, oh, I'm not wearing my butterfly shirt, but I'm really into butterflies because, and maybe you know this, when a butterfly, when the caterpillar turns into a cocoon, inside it becomes liquid. The, everything becomes liquid. And then from the liquid, the butter the, it reorganizes itself, and then the butterfly comes out. So that idea of dissolving into liquid and then getting reorganized and coming out a butterfly, I feel has happened twice in my life. And it usually takes about five years to have this whole evolving evolution. And what do I want to say about that? It's possible to evolve. And usually, the beginning of this is something extremely painful. Great grief or something very painful. I fall apart and then I get into this transformative experience. And it takes many years, actually, for it to happen. Katagiri Roshi used to call Zazen chewing the cud, which I talked about on Sunday. So the cow goes into the field and eats everything it can possibly see, but he can't, he or she can't digest it all. So they make it into a cud, and cows have many stomachs, supplementary stomachs that they stick the cud in. And the metaphor for me is I go through the days or my life and there's certain emotional experiences that I can't digest on the spot. 
especially childhood things, you, weren't, you just weren't capable of digesting what was going on. So you make the emotions and you stick it in your body somewhere. This is what I call body armoring. You actually start to armor your body with all these undigested things. And then, Katagiri Roshi said, then you hit Sashin or a training period and you stop. The outside world stops and you have time to burp up the cud and digest it. So a lot of times, Sashin or training period is very actively digesting things from the past and I think that is part of untangling your karma. And I trust, I call it the triangle. Of course, now I don't sit cross-legged. But when you sit cross-legged, you really feel like you're a triangle. And um, I, I say to myself, whatever happens inside the triangle, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are helping me. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to try. That's hard because in a way, we do have to work on interrupting our thoughts and bringing, you know, back to the breath, learning how to unify the mind or concentrate the mind. And that's hard to do. So that does have effort in it. But after your mind is somewhat settled, I think that you surrender your body-mind to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and the Dharma will come to you. And making myself available for the Dharma when I'm sitting is quite different than my ego, my thought frontal lobe trying to figure out what I should be doing and how it should be going and I shouldn't be like this or I should be like this. Really, for me, letting that go, that thought process has very little to do when you're sitting zazen, especially once you've kind of settled down. So there's different types of spaces that one gets into when one sits. A very beautiful space is the non-thinking space, very spacious, quiet, no entertainment. I don't like that one so much because I like to be entertained. <laughs> but I'm learning how to be satisfied with nothing going on. That's a mind that's quite contented and quite sat easily satisfied and not very attached to things. So that's a lovely mind that will pass in and out. There's also a mind that a lot of Zen people don't want to talk about, so this might be heretical. I hope this isn't too bad. <laughs> uh, but... I do get visions or images or things come out of the blue. 
And as long as they're not just chatty Kathy, you know, as long as they're not just discrim you know, talking, 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 if you really feel like, whoa, what just happened? Or what was that? I feel like that's a healing moment that you can't get attached to it like, oh, now I'm enlightened or something like stupid like that to say. But they do help you if you get them. I don't know if everybody gets them. But in the book, I, I wrote about quite a few of these visions that made me understand that the Buddhism ancestors were healing me. And I was hardly doing anything, just sitting in zazen. So let me just read. So I'm going into some stuff. Like, I would not read this at a public talk. I'm reading this because you're monastics and you're going into Ango. And it is in the book, but reading it out loud is different than uh, someone reading it at home by themselves. Okay, where is the thing about visions? Visions in meditation are also experienced in a place between the ordinary world of appearance and the world of extraordinary experience and can help the healing of our blocked energy. Something is trying to be communicated in this zazen-induced hallucination. When some Zen teachers hear about these visions, they just laugh and hit the student with the kyosaku, the awakening stick, and say makyo, or delusion, or thinking, or not this. But for me, these visions are often an expression of the way my body-mind is releasing an internal trauma. So I take care and I observe these visions without holding on to them, but being grateful for signs of healing and for cues that can teach me how to continue to let go. So now I'm going to tell you some of my visions. Little entertainment for the night. But I have one in this zendo. Uh, a Theravadan teacher, I don't even remember his name, but uh, quite a bigwig in the Theravadan world, was teaching. And the whole zendo was filled to the brim with people. And it was very quiet in here and very strong energy. And I was sitting with a lot of uh, roiling disturbance about my past. Roiling, roiling. And then, energetically, I felt like, oh, there was a lot of energy on the ceiling. And I think that the teacher might have said something about there's a lot of beings in the zendo and everyone is being taken care of by these beings. And all of a sudden, from the ceiling, 
an angel, classic with wings, came down from the ceiling, scooped up, and was right in front of me, and it was my mother. And she said, everything's all right, Judith, everything's all right. And then she disappeared. And I felt like, oh, my mom had died. And I said, oh, everything's all right. And there was some kind of karmic letting go that happened because my mom was okay. Everything's okay. Not only was it okay, but she was an angel. So, okay, mom. I never thought of my mother as an angel. She was part of my trauma, criticizing me all the time. But she came down and said, everything's okay. Everything's okay. Let's do the subtle arms. When I was, I, I had many decades where I did Sishin a lot. But in between Sishin or in between Angos, I did a lot of work, psychological work. I'd go to therapy, I was in 12-step programs. Uh, I really, really worked hard on what, what is entangled up in me? Why, why is this so? And I guess that must be on the psychological level. But then I'd come to Sishin, and um, some, I could let go of all that trying and working and everything, and sometimes the Sishin would untangle it for me. But it was based, I think, on all the work I did in between. It wasn't just out of the blue. It was because I had been digging and ir uh, irrigating the soil, and then I'd come. And this is kind of how I felt it or feel it, even still. The time and space of Sishin is where major shifts of energy and perspective can occur. The times between Sishins are when, through work and attention, we can till and fertilize the soil of our life by effort. We turn the Dharma wheel. Sometimes, if I have paid significant attention to my problem areas in between Sishin, I can enter into the stillness and quiet of Sishin, and in that silence, something greater than myself, some interconnected energetic functioning, enters me, releases me, and unravels my karmic knots. This healing energy is spontaneous and intuitive and does not come from my willpower. The Dharma wheel turns me. One vision I have about unwinding the karmic gnarls in my body and mind goes like this. I am sitting in the zendo, and my body is completely porous and transparent, revealing a body of energy. Then these elongated blue forearms come down from the sky with hands that have very thin, long, delicate fingers like a surgeon's. 
these fingers enter my diaphanous body and slowly, sensitively, and skillfully untangle the hard karmic knot present in my body and mind. I don't do anything. My hands stay receptive and inactive in the hand mudra. These dense masses in my body appear impermeable, but as the fingers untwist the threads of story, a great relief and release occurs. The other thing I notice is in healing. So I'm really talking about zazen as healing. That's what my book is about, but of course that's not all zazen is. But we don't often talk about, I don't think, the healing part of zazen. Um, and what I've noticed is the body and the spirit are like almost like a seesaw. Like sometimes my body lets go and my spirit has to come up to meet it. Or sometimes my spirit or my mind has a leap but my body is still back, you know, and it has to come up. So it's kind of like this as I let go of things. What else did I want to say there? Oh, what I've noticed in myself and also in my students is sometimes a breakthrough or a release happens during Sashin. And then it takes you forever, like a year or two years, to manifest it in your life. Like you get a, something opens, and then you feel like, oh, I have to get divorced. And then it takes you two or three years to manifest that, or I have to change my job. So it's very quick in the spirit realm or the energetic realm to change but it's very, very hard to change in the form world. You have to work at it, it's slow, and it might take a year or two years to manifest what you thought you saw for your life. I'm trying to decide um, if I should talk about sexual healing. So one of the chapters in the book is about don't misuse sexuality, which is one of the precepts. And I was abused as a child. I was raped on the street when I was about 32. And I have spent my whole life, I'm 71, healing from that. And I wrote about it. And I wrote about it because I don't think we talk enough about sexuality except to say, don't do it, <laughs> uh, in Zen. It, it doesn't seem too sex positive uh, for me. So I thought it was important to write about. I thought it was important to write about it because um, uh, even with the Me Too movement, which I'm grateful for, so now at least people might believe you when you say what happened, and maybe the person will, who did this to you would have some consequence. Um, so it's wonderful that that happened. But I feel like that's about um, 
10 or 15% of the issue. The rest of the issue is how do people recover? How do you come back to yourself? How do you love your body, become more sensual again, uh, be willing to go in your body? You know, and sometimes if you have sex abuse in your past, you don't want to sit zazen because you don't want to open up a can of worms, you know, or, or you feel frozen. So there's so many. So I wrote in the book, kind of frankly, uh, about what my husband and I did to help me uh, own my body again. So that's something about, I'll just say that if anything I'm saying right now, or if you're reading the book and you get stimulated about your own trauma, the most important thing I think is to be kind and gentle and slow down. That's when you should go on simmer. Don't push through. Go slower. Be kinder. Go for a walk. Get into your body, if you can, or energy. Um, so, and I tell people when they're reading the book, if you get stimulated, stop reading. Go do something else. Call a friend. You need a great deal of support. You need a great deal of support. And I needed a lot more support than I got from the Zen community, I'll say. So I found other ways of getting lots of support for myself. I think I've decided not to um, read that part. I'll go to inner fortitude. One thing I did that I'll just say in the sex chapter uh, is I took koans from the hidden lamp, you know, that koan collection of women koans. And there's like five or maybe even six women koan um, that are so sex positive. So I put three or four of them in the chapter to say that there is support for um, healing sexually from women in our lineage. So I did a chapter on inner fortitude, and a lot of it was a little bit of a critique of the masculine military way that Zen seems to manifest itself. But after I had written several pages like that, uh, this, this is what I also wrote. And I wanted to write it because uh, you guys are going into the um, bamboo pole. A less critical, a less cynical part of myself also wants to speak up. That part of me, me wants to convey her deep gratitude for the strength I developed in practice. My personal forbearance was cultivated by the practice of not moving and following the Sangha's schedule. The daily life in the monastery has taught me so much. I was fortunate to experience the harmony of a collection of diverse people moving as one body throughout the day, living together as a community, developing respect for each other, 
and giving care to our chores in the inevitable maintenance of human life. I remember work period where I would pull out weeds from the pebbled path for hours in the hot sun, day after day. This can be quite challenging and sweaty and tiring. Ironically, as soon as I would reach the end of one path, wanting to escape and be finished, I would look back behind me and see that I could just start all over again from the beginning on the very same walkway. Weeds continually grow and need to be removed. In these practices, you become starkly aware of the rhythm of life. In the quiet of the cloistered experience, you open to the miraculous, like sunrise and sunset, and you endure the monotonous, like doing the dishes after every meal. Through Zen, I learned how to take out and put back the tools I have used, not disrespecting them as I tend to do and leaving them helter-skelter on the table or the floor. Everything has its place. Zen emphasizes the small duties of life, cooking, cleaning, working, and studying. This focus has helped me find my inner stamina, which has come to my aid many times in my life. Katagiri Roshi used to call this quality spiritual stability. It has also taught me how to navigate the darkest times of grief. So I'm going to just end with Ehe Kosu Hotsu Gonmon, which is a Dogen fascicle. And he says, I'm just reading very short part. Quietly explore the farthest reaches of these causes and conditions, as this is the exact transmission of a verified Buddha. So the farthest reaches. So for me, the farthest reaches was going as a Jew, going to Auschwitz and Birkenau with Bernie Glassman, Dio show, and going to Jesus for peace. So in one place, I was the victim, and in the Japan, I was the perpetrator. And learning about what is that, and the duality of victim and perpetrator becoming spinning mutual in the victim, if the victim acts out their anger, they become the perpetrator. And in the perpetrator, if you look far enough in, you'll find the victim. And that understanding of the mutuality of those two helped me learn how to forgive or softened me up. I didn't have to hold someone up as the enemy. The farthest reaches. I mean, that was pretty far for me to go to Germany, Poland, I guess I was in, and um, explore what my parents' generation had to endure and the genocide of my people, and then going to um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki and seeing what we did there. To me, that really, that whole experience really changed me really allowed me to forgive. Oh, 
I guess I'm going to read this one. So when I went to Auschwitz-Birkenau, uh, that was the place I forgave my dad. And uh, my dad was a very angry man, uh, created a very difficult household. Um, because I was the only girl and the youngest, so I didn't get it as much. But my brothers, boy, they got creamed by my dad, and I had to watch it. So I, I wasn't happy with my dad. So to forgive my dad was a big thing. So here's the paragraph about that. Standing in the middle of the Birkenau concentration camp, I realized the causes and conditions that had made my father my so-called enemy, and he became a human being in my eyes. I saw beyond my limited and preconceived intellectual understanding of who my father was and the conditions that had shaped his psyche. My heart opened to the causes of my father's rage. It struck me like lightning in a moment of insight and release as I was moving in a long stream of retreat participants towards the front gates for a lunch of bread and soup. All of a sudden, with no warning or intention, I found myself dropping to my knees, my head bent over and my hands on my heart. People were streaming past me on both sides as if I were a rock in a stream, the water rushing past. In this moment, out of time, huddled forward over my knees, I forgave my father and I asked him to forgive me. Crying and howling with grief for my ancestors, for my parents, and for me, I saw the many repercussions of the violence and dehumanization that had happened in Birkenau and in my people's lives and their connection with my own life. So one of the themes in the book is the psyche of the oppressed. So because I was a Jew, I, I have this psyche. Um, I, I can get paranoid very easily. I, I often think that someone's going to kill me. Like I was very nervous about giving these talks because I had to get over that Jewish thing that if you speak in public, you're going to get killed, especially if you say you're a Jew. So that's not true now, right? It is, well, it is kind of, but it's not the same as it was in the 50s. But um, so these things we have to bring up and work out, work through, if we're going to have freedom or the spirit, open-hearted spirit. So, um, so I talked a lot about the psyche of the oppressed, and I had hoped that by going deeply into my own psyche that I would touch on what it means for other people who are oppressed. And I have been getting reactions from African Americans and uh, Native people that they actually are relating to what I wrote in the book. So I, I feel very relieved 
that what my hope was actually happened. So um, Chosen and I were talking today about uh, kintsugi, which is the Japanese craft uh, when the uh, pottery is broken and there are bits of pottery that they take the bits back together, glue them together, and in the cracks, gold or they put gold or silver or porcelain, and they the pot just turns out beautiful. So I don't know, can you see it or should I pass it around? Maybe pass we'll it around. pass it around. Uh, and then if someone's by the camera, will you make sure that the people online see it? So, um, so that's what I feel like I've done, uh, 50 years of Zen, is I, I found all my parts, and especially the parts I hated about myself. I loved them up, and I'm putting it back together. Uh, and I feel like the gold is our love, unconditional love, kindness. And because I was uh, a survivor, and because my family was so violent, I really didn't know that very much about love. I still don't know that much about love. Uh, it's really part of my, major part of my practice now, is to understand gentleness and loving someone without them having to change. I've been really concentrating on that. Loving myself without having to change. And I think that Zazen, can teach you that, the divine love. You can taste it, and it will come and soften you up. Well, that was really f different. I don't know if those of you who were there on Sunday, this was a different talk. <laughs> encourages you to go into ango with your whole heart. It's special. It's a special time. And it might not happen again. <laughs>